Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be here with you today. Um, like Rick said, my name is Ben Nicka. Some of you might know me better as Eugene's dad. Um, our family started attending Restoration last summer after moving here from New York City, and uh, we're really thankful to be part of uh, this community. And thanks, Pastor Rick, for inviting me to share from Nehemiah today. Some of you may know I, I led a faith and work ministry in Queens before we moved here. And uh, today I'd like to read Nehemiah's story with you uh, through the lens of work. But before we dive in, let me address the children and uh, some of the adults who like to doodle. Uh, do you have your worship journals with you, kids? Um, today, we're going to be talking about two ways of living. On the one hand, we have the rulers of Babel, uh, who build a tower so they can live for themselves. And on the other hand, we have these people who follow Nehemiah in building a city wall for Jerusalem so that life uh, can really thrive there. You know, kids in the streets, grandparents in the parks, people working and providing for one another. Um, so I think you could draw today a really big, fearful tower, uh, maybe something like The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, or if you're a Tolkien person, this might be Minas Morgul. And then um, on the other hand, drawing this beautiful city with buildings and gardens and parks and pools and schools and everything good. Um, and then you can show us what it's like to have one life, one city that's full of life and another that's uh, empty. And like last week, post it and, um, and we'll share it around. And for the teens here and uh, online, my hope is that you can hear in this message something for yourselves, that you can start to envision your life's work, starting now in school and on through uh, the rest of your years, as something that can be a great goodness for you. Not a burden, but a great goodness. I really wish I would have heard this, these kinds of truths from God's word when I was young. Uh, so take this to heart. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father in heaven, the deepest fields of the cosmos sing forth your mysterious and wonderful goodness. Would you sing this music into our hearts and minds, into our lives and work this morning? In the name of Jesus and for his sake we pray. Amen. You know, 2020 has been a very tumultuous year uh, for all of us. Upheavals in the economy, in our city, and the nation, and the world. And cries from justice are heard from every corner. Um, today, I want to talk about the role of our daily work in serving justice by considering this story of cultural renewal that we see here in Nehemiah. You know, I believe that for almost all of us, um, the primary way in which we will contribute to the prevalence of justice and flourishing in our time is through our work. You're going to vote, I hope, volunteer, donate, um, these are all very important. But whether we are teachers or nurses or accountants, um, marketers, bus drivers, police officers or homemakers, the primary way we can contribute to our city is through our work. Um, work, our work, matters intensely. And before we consider Nehemiah, I just want to lay out some basic definitions of what are we aiming for here? We're aiming for shalom and justice. Now, shalom is just a Hebrew word meaning peace, but it's a little richer than our word. Um, shalom involves right relationships with God, with others, uh, with ourselves, and with all of creation. It is a weaving together of everything and everyone for universal flourishing, for fulfillment, wholeness, and delight. 
It's where needs are satisfied, gifts are employed, and the overall impression of life is joyful wonder. In other words, shalom, it's the way things ought to be. And at the core of this vision of justice is, uh, the core of this vision rather is justice. Injustice is an opposition to evil in every one of its innumerable manifestations. Shalom simply cannot prevail in a culture where everyone is self-seeking, but only when justice actively rules and oppression ceases. So our question for today, looking at Nehemiah, is how can our work contribute um, to the prevalence of justice and shalom? And I'd like to take up this question under three headings. First, I want to look at what it means to build walls like Nehemiah does. Second, um, to contrast that with building towers. And then I want to talk about receiving the one who came to build. So walls, towers, and then a receiving. Um, and just to be clear, the walls here we're talking about are not politically, you know, it's not walls between U.S. and Mexico. It's not that. Um, I did that once and I just totally... <laughs> confused people. Okay, so to give a bit of context, let's dive into building walls. Um, the context of our passage is Nehemiah is coming back to Jerusalem about a hundred years after um, the exile in Babylon had ended and some people had come back to the land. In chapter one, which we didn't read, Nehemiah hears words through a friend of just how broken down the society is back in Jerusalem and the, and the surrounding nation. And it hits him right in the heart. And then in our passage, uh, he asked the king if he might return home um, to restore life there. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he immediately calls for the wall to be rebuilt. And he says, God is in this work. And nearly everyone is on board. And then in chapter 3, um, we see the rebuilding go all the way around the city wall and everybody's taking part. Almost everybody. So why is building a wall so critical uh, for Nehemiah's project of cultural renewal. Well, in ancient times, people didn't live in cities primarily because it was fun and exciting and fulfilling, um, but because cities were sanctuaries for life. At their best, cities would provide um, physically and economically vulnerable people with shelter against violence, criminal activity, uh, animals, warlords, injustice of all sorts. The cities were where the courts were, they administered justice for work and, um, and labor and commerce. They um, protected and cared for the weak and the vulnerable. So this city wall then was a physical structure which provided sanctuary for all the elements of human flourishing within the city. So we have to ask, what does building structures for flourishing look like in our time, in our place, and in our work? And I want to list four ways that I think our work can serve justice and shalom that we see in this passage. And I want to call these ways ministries, uh, because in our work, we can bring the goodness of God into people's life. It's a ministering of his presence. It's a crucial way we look at our work. So first, uh, first is the ministry of competence. Now, I get this from Dorothy Sayers, and she was a friend of uh, Lewis and Tolkien, maybe a bit smarter than those guys. And she says that the first thing the church should say to a worker, like let's say an intelligent carpenter, is build very good chairs. Make very good houses. Um, be like your heavenly father and do good work. Said another way, good work done well blesses others. 
but poor work is like a curse. Sayer sees that God delights in good work done well. Good work in all fields, each of which addresses a different human need or societal um, desire, is the utter bedrock of justice and shalom. Builders building well, uh, cleaners cleaning, uh, writers writing, lawyers writing good laws and serving justice and fairness. This is crucial. And we have to ask ourselves, how does my work serve others? How do others rely on my work? Uh, or said negatively, who suffers when I do my work poorly? And in our story, we see that Nehemiah here is a member of the court, and a core competency of his work is leadership and allocation of resources, and he puts these competencies to the service of the city and human flourishing throughout the whole book. It's quite astounding if you go read it. Second, I want to talk about the ministry of vulnerability. You know, in this story, the catalyst for the entire story, uh, all of Nehemiah's work, is his hearing of the homeland's degradation and reacting to it with tears and prayers and fasting. His heart is wide open to the injustice and the brokenness of Jerusalem. And he responds to the call that's implicit in this gut-level reaction that he has. Nehemiah here models for us how important it is to cultivate a heart and a mind which can see and feel the injustice and brokenness around us. This sensitivity is going to look different in every workplace and field. Sometimes in your work, you have to see specific people or moments um, and let them shake us into action. And other times, you're going to be given revelations of the systemic brokenness of your field. And you'll know that this brokenness needs to be understood in detail and kind of brought out into the open to be changed. But the key here is that we need to cultivate this openness of heart. Thirdly, the ministry of creativity. Now, throughout this book of the Bible, uh, we see Nehemiah observing brokenness, and he always creatively addresses it through work. He displays a keenly cultivated sense of the forms that justice and shalom need to take in his time and his place and his work. And if we want our work to serve human flourishing, I think it's critical to let our imaginations be stirred to life. Um, let our imaginations be set free to envision a better world, a better version of our personal work in our sector. We need to be captivated, swept up in the biblical vision of justice and shalom so that we can see new ways of reshaping our work, um, aligning it with God's vision for the essence of your work. You know, asking questions like, how can libraries best support communities? How can health insurance companies support health and financial sustainability and keep their customers from being confused? Uh, how can websites liberate instead of enslave? How can homes be truly worthy of that lovely word, home? We should, how should the very aims of our fields, maybe even, be rewritten? Creatively seeking justice and shalom is gonna be a critical part of building structures for flourishing in our time. And the last point I'd like to add here is the ministry of trust. Now, it's gonna be very difficult, and it is always difficult to see the fruits of your labor. But what we need to do is not focus on what we can see. Don't trust that only. 
Instead, we need to entrust our work to God's greater plan, giving what little we can see, the little guidance we can receive and do into God's hands. And we see this in chapter 3. If you read the whole chapter, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible on work because everyone's contributing to the wall. Everyone's going up and building their little section, almost everyone. And the key is that everyone is building and they're making their efforts. We feel like we can't make a big change on our own, but that's not the point of life. We're small and finite. We need to contribute it to God. Your work matters. It's not in vain. That's kind of the point. So friends, you know, we live in great hope when we work because God has promised that justice and shalom will be the final word. And because of this, we can trust that our work is not in vain. So that's a brief sketch on how we can build walls and structures for flourishing in our work. But now let's discuss the opposition, these people who want to build towers. You know, you read in this passage the very frank statement that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem oppose this work that's going to increase the welfare of Jerusalem. They're not hiding themselves at all. They're, they see that Nehemiah's work is going to upset a status quo in which they're doing pretty well, and they'd like to protect the current good life that they've achieved exploiting these people. And I call this mindset tower building because I think it, you first start to see it clearly in the Bible in Genesis 11 in the story of the Tower of Babel. And I'd like to look a little bit at the story of Babel, or Babylon, really, um, to explain what tower building looks like. Now, uh, key here is to recognize that the Sunday school teaching uh, of the Tower of Babel is at best inadequate or incomplete. Um, the Sunday school version makes it sound like if you build a high tower, there's something inherently evil, and so you look downtown and you're thinking, well, I don't know. Um, but that's not really the point. Actually, if you read the story closely, it's, it's not clear what the evil is that God is opposing. Um, it's kind of hidden. The story starts, for instance, uh, with the people of Babel going out into the plains. They find a place where they want to live, and they build a city. And their goals are pretty mundane. They want security, a name for themselves and their family, a good life filled with blessing. And in themselves, these are good things. You know, no mention is made, for instance, in the story of the slave labor, the war and the violence, and the oppression that's surely behind the city's might. No real mention is made either of false worship or idolatry. Babel is presented as mundane. And we have to ask why. I think we are supposed to be surprised, actually, when God comes down and says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And then he derails their work by confusing their language. I think we're supposed to meant, what's so bad about what they're doing? What's so bad about wanting a good life and a good name for our families, about wanting security? But you see, the Bible is telling us that underneath this veneer of simply seeking a good life is a way of life which is totally focused on the self, completely focused on arranging everything around my concerns and my welfare, my name and my security, my career, my children. The story doesn't mention the slavery and the violence and the injustice of Babylon because the rulers of Babylon don't think about these things. They think about themselves. Tower building doesn't need the ministry of competence because my work is primarily about what I can get out of it. That craft that I do at work, that's just a means to an end of me. 
It doesn't need to be vulnerable because it doesn't care. Creativity is just aimed at maintaining the status quo and my current advantages. And we trust ourselves, not God, in directing our work. And if we hold up this story of Babel to our time, it's actually quite alarming. You know, our whole culture of work is obsessed with finding work which satisfies and fulfills us, which affords us the most pleasure and comfort possible, which allows us to move up the ladder of wealth and class, to do better than our parents, and to live the American dream. And these are good things, sure, but they're not ultimate things. In general, I think ours is a world where seeking justice and shalom in our work is at best a secondary concern. Injustice is really only on the forefront of our minds when there's an incident or a scandal or a fraud or a crime or the 2008 meltdown or the 2000 meltdown in financial markets or the one that's coming up really soon. And, um, but once that news cycle is over, the old normal just continues. We go back to the status quo because we don't really care in our time. And it's easy for me to see in my own work how I'm so comfortable building towers for myself, how easy it is to go for my own comfort, um, my own career, my own goals. How about you? Do you see that in certain ways your lives and work are primarily oriented around building structures for your reputation and for your comfort, security, and wealth? But I wanna go one level deeper in this middle point here on this tower building mindset. You know, the Bible never stops just telling you, here's the good way to live, build walls, and here's the bad way to live, build towers, and guess which one's the one you should choose. There is a savior, but there's also a deeper meaning here which is quite frightening. I think the New Testament draws out these um, elements of spiritual warfare which are going on, these darker forces. I think we see that in our time there's a spiritual evil which is using the status quo to turn us away from living and working for justice and to twist our work towards the perpetuation of injustice. Said in another way, uh, I think the Bible sees that men and women are unconsciously conforming to a way of life which is destructive. We don't need to consciously decide to be tower builders, we often are just are tower builders, shaped by our time and our place to perpetuate the existing structures of injustice. We are, so to speak, under an enchantment. And as we turn to our last point, we just need to ask, who can break the enchantment? So let's talk lastly about receiving the one who came to build. You know, in our passage, Nehemiah's presence in his words they are the things that break the spell and begin renewal in Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem hear his call and decide to build the wall and make Jerusalem a place for flourishing once again. And I think we just need to dwell on Nehemiah a little bit. He's an incredible figure. First, he's very rich and powerful. You know, he has the ear of the king. Not only that, he's rich. He comes into Jerusalem and pays all of his own expenses, never takes a wage, and provides food for everybody. And he comes in with an army, so he's got great power. He's got letters from the king to get anything he wants to do the work that he's going to do. He comes from a city just like Babylon. But interestingly, he puts all of this at risk and comes into lowly Jerusalem. 
where many desire to murder him, and he's going to face a lot of opposition. He invests all of his wealth and power, his work, into the flourishing of the city, and he allows that suffering of the city to impact him. He made himself vulnerable by coming to save it. You know, Nehemiah helped Jerusalem by coming in from the outside. He came from comfort and power and prestige into the mess and danger and brokenness of Jerusalem. And that has to remind us of someone else. It has to remind us of what Jesus does for us. Jesus existed in, for all eternity in the comfort and pleasure and beauty. Time, he came down into the mess, giving up all of his comforts because he felt the suffering of our lives on his own heart. You know, he didn't just take a risk of loss, but he embraced loss so fully that he went into death on the cross for us, for our brokenness. And through this death and this resurrection, um, Jesus can liberate us. He is the liberating king. He can break the enchantment. He can show us the new way to live, invite us into his kingdom. It's through the power of his spirit that people under the spell are set free to live in a new way. You know, Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and its justice and all the fruits of joy. The fullness of shalom will be added to you. Friends, the power of his spirit enables us to be like Nehemiah, to live out this ministry of competence, of vulnerability, of creativity, and of trust. In him, through the cross, we have that total security already. The most important things in our lives can never be taken away. We have a name. We have true comfort. We have access to glory. But we can't simply accept this freedom and identity. We must follow Jesus by giving him our work. So friends, just like it says in verse 18, let us rise up and build in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.